Hello and welcome to Rose Radio. I'm Jahari Durhill from DSA North Carolina Piedmont in Raleigh. And I'm Hannah Allison and I'm DSA's traveling organizer. And we've got two guests with us today. Hi, I'm Zach from Fargo uh, with Red River Valley DSA chapter. Hi, I'm Russell Weiss Irwin. I'm a member of Boston DSA and I'm a member of the National Political Committee. Welcome Zach and Russ. Thanks. Thank you. Today, I will be interviewing Zach to talk about some really awesome things their chapter has done this year. And then we'll be answering some of your questions from uh, what we've decided to call the mailbag. Juicy mailbag. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) And Russell Weiss Irwin from DSA's National Political Committee will join us in answering those questions and in giving updates from the national office, talking about Convention 2017. Really excited to talk about that. Why don't we just jump into the interview? Okay, let's do it. Zach, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Hi, Zach. So today we're going to talk about, gosh, a lot of things. A really interesting story that you brought to Rose Radio. As our listeners will see, this is a really cool confluence of lots of political rumblings at the federal and the state level and then also at the grassroots level with leftists in North Dakota um, around refugees and legislative recalls and organizing and coalition building and all sorts of really fun stuff. Um, I had trouble kind of conceiving of how we were going to go about this conversation. But I think maybe, Zach, you're the best person to start us off. Um, So I guess I want to have you... Tell me a little bit about how long has Red River Valley been a chapter? Uh, I believe we became a chapter in uh, March or April, but we we actually started meeting a lot earlier than that. Um, Not necessarily as DSA, but... Right. You guys, you you said that you guys started meeting as just people with mutual interests in socialism, in political activism. Um, but you came together specifically around what issue? Um, initially, it was socialism. But I guess what, what had happened was, um, you know, Donald Trump was elected. Um, so that gave us a little bit of an, an impetus to start meeting more regularly and expanding who we're meeting with. Um, a few of us had joined DSA shortly after the election. And then around January, uh, we were on a call with Maria Svart and we about the idea of like actually forming a chapter. And the time that we were on that call, it was actually the same week as like the airport travel bans. Uh, the Women's March had just happened. You know, there there was a lot of stuff going on locally, nationally, and at the state level because our state legislature just picked up in January. Um, and it lasts for 80 days, and it's a very intense 80 days. So, I mean, there was a lot of things going on at, at one one time that kind of got the ball rolling for us. Right. And just for a reminder for people... Um, Trump's travel ban, his executive order, was issued on January 27th. But then the week prior, on January 16th, um, Representative Christopher Olson, a Republican of West Fargo, introduced House Bill 1427, um, which dealt with the influx of refugees to North Dakota. Um, So that is a really interesting coincidence, and especially for you all, 
as a burgeoning DSA chapter. Um, and I wonder if you would tell us a little bit more about how those two events affected you and what kind of, how it enacted um, the chain of events that led to this campaign. Yeah, so uh, 1427, HB 1427, was a state bill basically that would work to try to stop refugees, not necessarily like illegal immigrants. This is legal status refugees from being placed in North Dakota. North Dakota has the most per capita refugees of any state, um, which is actually really easy to do in North Dakota because there's only about three quarters of a million people here. So we're, we tend to be at the right. top of every per capita list. Mm-hmm. Um And I want to share with our listeners that um, the stats that I found for 2015, North Dakota had about 135 refugees for every 100,000 people. Yeah, and I think that's per year. Uh, That was probably about 2014. So, I mean, it's it's about 1,000 people per year. North Dakota is about 85% non-Hispanic white, which has gone down over the past few years. It's becoming a more more diverse area, particularly in uh, larger cities like Fargo, uh, Bismarck on the west west side of the state. But fourteen twenty seven was a was a particularly annoying bill that was kind of the culmination of a lot of rhetoric that really started with Donald Trump. Trump, with his anti immigration rhetoric, was kind of parroted a lot by people like. Uh, Representative Olson from West Fargo, but also like Dave Pepcorn, a local a Fargo city commissioner. And they really pushed this narrative that, you know, like refugees, particularly Somalian refugees, were coming to Fargo and then uh, just like costing the city, um, in Dave Pepcorn's words, millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. <laughs> right. At one point, he went, Dave Pepcorn, Commissioner Pepcorn, went on to Breitbart specifically to kind of talk about how political correctness could get you killed in Fargo. Do you think there's an element of political correctness? Are you kidding me? (laughs) What kind of a question is that? You call (laughs) yourself... It's a softball. You call yourself a a journalist? It's a softball. Of course, it's political correctness. uh, And if you're not careful, political correctness is going to get you killed. So, I mean, Pepcorn wasn't necessarily the first target. The first target was the the bill. The bill was looking like it was going to pass the House. So a lot of organizers across a big coalition of human rights activists and um, a lot of people who even worked like with DAPL and local activists here. Remember, this is prior to us like even forming a DSA chapter. We We had just like talked about the idea of doing it. Got several hundred people in front of the Fargo city hall and then we had we held like a big rally against it um and this is also just like a few days after the airport protests as well so it got people people were motivated people were were ready to come out and fight and then the next morning the coalition sent a bus full of actual refugees to go speak to congress now before you continue um this action that you took with the coalition let's back up a little bit and talk some about how you built this coalition and how the red river valley dsa took this issue on um, I I know that in our discovery talk before this, you'd mentioned that DSA had hosted several listening sessions with refugee communities um, of various nationalities. And so could you just talk a little bit about how that relationship formed and then how you actually went out and built this coalition around the bill to take action? Yeah. So, I mean, the bill itself, I think the coalition just kind of like formed quickly and hastily um, because it was uh, there was like an immediate need for it. 
Um, and I don't know how much like actual organizing went behind it. It was just like a bunch of people who've, you know, held rallies or, or um, spoken in front of people before just got together and quickly threw this together. Um, and it worked. We, you know, we got to the we got to the state house and the bill was the best we can do in North Dakota because the Republicans have an 85 percent supermajority um, mm-hmm. in Congress. The best we can really do is like get things converted to a study. And then hopefully, like either not fund the study or you know uh, have some direction in terms of like how these studies are done by bureaucrats. So the listening sessions kind of happened after that. It was like you know we we had won this thing, which was kind of amazing that we actually had a win in North Dakota. And we the the regular meetings that we had just to talk about socialism. We when we met with Maria, we talked about. In, when building a chapter, you really want to have like diverse viewpoints, and a lot of us were white people in our 30s or late 20s. And that got us really thinking about how do we build a chapter strategically in terms of like, how do we build into communities that we don't necessarily interact with every day? And one thing that we did is we started with this group that fought 1427 is we invited a lot of the people like the refugee advocates and and others to just come speak at a coffee shop with us about whatever issues they wanted to speak about. Could you share two things for me? Um, mm-hmm. Speak more specifically about the coalition that you actually had. So you had refugee advocates, but what other grassroots organizations did you work with around this issue? Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, there's one organization that does specific work uh, in the Somalian community, but we also reached out to South Sudanese communities, Native American communities. And then there's a few activists that aren't necessarily part of groups, but are very well known that are from different places like Pakistan and um, a few other places. And did you have any support from religious institutions or sort of high profile groups like ACLU or Planned Parenthood? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not not like right. I mean, it when fighting 1427. Yes, uh, those those groups were all involved. Um, Like, like Planned Parenthood, for example, Planned Parenthood, we don't have a Planned Parenthood in the state of North Dakota. We have one independent abortion clinic, but we don't have any Planned Parenthoods, but there is a Planned Parenthood Action Committee, and one of their major tenants is immigration rights because people being deported breaks up families. Mm-hmm. And also with the original collection of of DSA members that you guys, you know, after you came together initially just based on socialism, but then decided to become a chapter, what was that makeup like? I mean, I know that you said that you were largely white and and well educated, but what what would be the background that you guys came from? It's just very impressive that you were able to mobilize so well. And so I know that you come from an organizing background, but what about right. um, your other comrades? Yeah, I, uh, a few of them work in nonprofits where they work with uh, these sorts of communities or they just happen to know people. That's that's That was pretty much it. It was just like we, we sat down and we thought like fairly strategically. It was like, well, okay, like who who do we know who we can ask to come and we didn't ask with like a socialist pretense we didn't say hey we have a socialist group like we're we'd like you to come and speak we said hey you know we want to we want to hear how we can work in coalition with you on your issues and like continue this fight uh, you know against 1427 because that you know 1427 defeating it didn't stop like the rhetoric and it certainly didn't stop a lot of the actions that were happening we won at the state level but we didn't win at the city level so dave pepcorn one of the other actors here was very adamantly pushing for local studies into how much the city was spending. And there's a county commissioner as well who is demanding from 
the government services and then like the religious services that, that right. bring refugees here. Um, they've really started pushing for information, but it was in it was in this way that wasn't necessarily genuine. Like, like they weren't coming from like a they were coming from a disingenuous place, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They they came at it as in, you know, like this is costing us millions of dollars. Where do we, you know, where is our taxpayer dollars going? And then like one organization, Lutheran Social Services, would say, well, come to our audit. Um, we, we're doing like a quarterly audit and the politicians would never show up or else like the numbers would come out in some way. And what would happen is they wouldn't. You know, the uh, presentation from the Fargo Human Relations Commission, they presented a report on refugee resettlement uh, last Thursday. Was there anything really in that report? No, it was it was propaganda and fake news. They wouldn't believe the numbers or whatever. It was just like constantly browbeating on this issue um, for their own political gain, really. Um, right. Dave Pepcorn is likely going to run for mayor next year. So I think this is good in terms of getting background on what it was that you all were fighting initially together. But now I just want to talk a little bit more specifically about how you built the culture of the Fargo DSA. Your, your first major initiative right out of the gate involved challenging legislation and then later challenging an elected official. Um, and I, I, I want us to talk about this a little bit more as, you know, once we get to it, but particularly the idea around recalling Dave Pepcorn from his position, from his seat. So I know when we talked before, you had described in your email that initially after the listening sessions, people had said to you, well, we want to recall this man. We, he's doing too much damage. And the initial reaction from DSA was, well, there's some problems with that. We're not really sure how this would work. But then eventually someone had the idea that maybe it'd be worthwhile just to say yes and figure out how to make that happen. And so if you could just talk a little bit about the philosophy around that and what it is that you felt that you've gained through this process and that you would not have gained had you not pursued it. Yeah, I think I have a little bit of goosebumps right now thinking about it because, I mean, that, that was a really transformative moment, I think, for a lot of us in our chapter because we, we did what a lot of a lot of other organizations were doing. Um, so right after the 1427 died, a group of Somali activists started going around trying to build a coalition around like what can we can we target Dave Pepcorn for a recall and you know what what would it take to get that done and we did a lot of the same stuff that like the Democrats did where it was like ah eh, you know I don't I don't know like he's up for re-election next year anyway like what's the point we can we can target him next year he doesn't have the votes on the city council to get anything that he wants actually enacted and we did that and like one of our one of our members and I'm so happy for it because he he just looked at everyone and said okay how about instead of saying no let's just what are the reasons for doing it and we started just listing reasons like well you know can we drain Dave Pepcorn's finances for a mayoral campaign? Uh, I'll give you a hypothetical. So if we do this recall, then I'll be, whenever it starts in June or July, uh, then I'll be camp campaigning. But then then the next election, I will I would start campaigning in January. So uh, basically, the unintended consequence, I don't think people thought about is, so then I'll be running a campaign starting fairly soon, going through next June. Can we really push this issue hard in the media um, and make it like a really toxic issue for any anybody to continue actually trying to push any sort of legislation? 
And then can we actually go door to door? Like, can we talk to people on the street about this particular issue and this particular person? And the more we started talking about like, why should we do it? The more it became incredibly clear that we absolutely should do, not just for like a moral reason, but for all sorts of like strategic and tactical reasons as well. Right. So this was really the the part of the narrative where you guys relied heavily on more, you know, more people out on the pavement, knocking on doors or, and, you know, being behind you on this issue. So I know this sounds a little like maybe kind of strange to rehearse because it's so <laughs> technical or fine grained, but you guys did, you know, you had to get signatures for a petition and you had to be strategic about that. And you, you had to teach people as they were entering DSA how to go out and canvas. So what was that like and how did you develop strategy for mobilizing new members? Yeah, so I think what initially happened was we had members like myself and a few others who have canvassing experience for various initiatives. In North Dakota, we have a very like open ballot initiative process. So a lot of activists end up, that's how we get things done is through a wider democratic vote of people rather than through the legislature. But with this particular issue, it was interesting because number one is this is a group of people that were generally younger, didn't have a ton of electoral uh, politics experience. And this is also like a really touchy subject in North Dakota. The upper Midwest is very known for its passive aggressiveness and its uh, <laughs> like stoic stoicism. Um, so going to somebody, <laughs> yeah. So going to somebody's door and saying this person is bad is um, was a tricky situation, but it was a learning experience. Like because you know we we worked on a wrap and we had two months, less than two months, to get thirty five hundred signatures, which doesn't sound like a lot, but mm -hmm. in a short amount of time uh, with not particularly well-heeled um, organization, it, it, it was, but we were able to get there. But the thing was, is from that, we really started building a coalition. We did a lot of interfaith work on moral grounds. One of the first groups to actually sign on with us was a group of Catholic nuns, purely for moral social justice reasons. And then, you know, once we started doing canvassing and started getting out, like, feet on the ground, like, union organizers um, started to see that and they became involved but again with like Planned Parenthood we, we kind of pushed them to at least like if not overtly work with us on this at least let us like show up to your events with clipboards um, and start getting signatures that way and then we also had like a really good contingent of people from the Bernie Sanders campaigns mm -hmm. there was a lot of people who you know had worked really hard um, throughout North Dakota Bernie Sanders in the caucus, and they they were fired up to do work again. So this was an issue that I think a lot of them, they, they saw us doing work, and they were attracted to the work, and they came out. So with, you said 10,000 people you spoke to, how many people did you send out to come back with those numbers? So usually we would send out just a couple. You know, it's it was springtime, so weather gets to be pretty hairy around that mm -hmm. time here. Um, in North Dakota, our winters, the average temperature is less than 13 degrees. So it's cold here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in spring, it, it can go from 70 to 10 degrees in less than 24 hours. So we did have some snaps of cold. But on average, I think we got around 10, usually on the weekends. And then like usually like three or four people regularly going out. And this is actually what attracted a lot of union organizers to us to like help out with us. Because they were seeing like, you know, during an election season, they're like, wait, we can't even get two people to show up for a canvas, let alone 10. So, you know, it wasn't a ton. It, it, it's not like it wasn't like a big organizational thing, but they were a dedicated group and it was a pretty diverse group. Um, so mm -hmm. 
people didn't go out every weekend. They went out, you know, a few times. So you, once you gathered all these signatures, what happened next? Uh, <laughs> okay, so we have the signatures and we got in just before the deadline. And well, let's back up. The first thing that had happened was the city attorney sent a letter to the attorney general about what the legality of our recall. There's some vagueness in the law about whether or not we would have been on time for this recall. I don't, I guess I don't need to get into the specifics of it, but ultimately we just like went right through that and just kept working. And then when we did get the signatures, Dave Pepcorn started doing radio interviews. And I do have to tell you, so when they turn in the signatures for the Freedom of Information Act, then I'm going to request a copy of all the signatures so we can review them as well. Talking about like, well, he was going to FOIA request all the names and he was going to like release them. And that's that's terrifying. And I will say relating to the police, we will be asking for, to, to track the, the refugee numbers. Especially, you know, when, when you have like a thousand Muslim signatures in a county where people are getting regularly asked their immigration status when they're pulled over by a police officer. So, you know, we had to make a decision about whether or not we should continue. We didn't hit our goal. Our goal was about 4,000 signatures. We got about 3,600 which is more than is necessary to cause a recall. But in there's there's no standard for what can constitute like a the removal of a name from a petition here. Um, it can be literally the, the, the city auditor just can't read the name or the name doesn't look like it's from here and they mm-hmm. can cross it off. Um, so the question became like with the lawyers that we were working with is like, do we really want to risk real lives here or do we want to like turn this into, you know, continue this campaign on throughout you know, next year. And I I think in a lot of ways, like that's, I don't see that as like a loss. We ended up doing a lot of number one damage to Dave Pepcorn. Right. Um, Number two, like we raised so much awareness on the issue that like it hasn't really come up anymore. There's this Dave Pepcorn. At one point he tried to like get city staff to submit a bunch of stuff, but it's all been like quietly happening in the background in the city. It's offices it hasn't really been happening in public as like a campaign platform for for anyone anymore um and then also like people like chad peterson the uh, county commissioner is now saying things like well like how do we help people like these people aren't getting paid enough and it was like great i have a perfect plan for that how about 15 dollars an hour <laughs> you know so you were really able to kind of reshape um the public opinion the public discourse around refugees in such a short amount of time yeah, I think I yeah, I think we did a lot of help with the with the discourse, but also we, you know, we we stopped a lot of rhetoric from continuing. So, with where you are now, I am curious to know briefly what you all plan to do next. I mean, I know I would assume a lot of your time is wrapped up just around getting to the convention and what will happen after that, but um do you have any ideas of what other kinds of issues you want to tackle or groups you want to work with, et cetera, going forward? So I think there's there's a lot of excitement at Red River Valley around the skills that we built. A lot of people hadn't canvassed before, and now they're really pumped about canvassing. So things like that are going to be talked about at convention, like single-payer Medicare for all, that's something that I think a lot of us can get get behind in terms of how do we like think nationally and act locally. And then in terms of like all sorts of other issues, we just have like a really cohesive core group of activists now who are have struggled together and have done like real 
work together. And a lot of them, I think, wouldn't have even considered themselves socialists to start. They were just, they were involved in this work because it was work that they believe in. And then just through like working side by side with people, they started to hear like the more, the more Marxist among us, like talking mm-hmm. about like, you know, this isn't just an issue of social justice. This is, there's all sorts of issues of imperialism and um, a million other like this is a, this isn't just a race issue. It's a worker issue because of you know our farm laborers, and people really started to see like the interconnectedness of it all, and then started to really start opening up to becoming very open socialists. A lot of them have like completely <laughs> radicalized in the in a matter of a couple of months. It's kind of cool to see. That's fantastic. And so um, finally, I just want to get your thoughts kind of at a, a high level of what this means for for organizing and like in the context of building a chapter, um, what has this experience taught you and what would you recommend other chapters do and sort of what attitude do you kind of need to be successful in the way that you all have been successful this year? Yeah, I think the first part was we should think about is that we just did work right we we didn't really think about it too much other than like how do we how do we get to like the idea of yes like you know things seem impossible but what if we just start doing them because that that work actually starts to build a lot of bonds with our group and now we're starting to think about all sorts of different issues and i think that's the really important part the second part that i really benefited from as a straight white person was to sit down with different groups and just talk to them just ask like different organizations bringing them to you know our little coffee shop meetings and talking them to them about like what their issues are what what interests them what sorts of campaigns do they see themselves doing in the next year or two and then not like going to those sorts of things to like lecture them about socialism or anything like that like it was just entirely to hear where everybody else um on the the general left um, and progressives in Fargo uh, and the area tend to tend to see themselves, and that that really helped us find like our our place and where where do we fit among all of these groups um, so that we can work in coalition with them in the future. This is great. Thank you so much, Zach. And yeah, thank you. And I I hope we run into each other in Chicago in a couple of weeks. Definitely. Great. Okay. So let's jump into some of the questions from DSA members from across the country. This is something we're calling the mailbag, where we answer your questions about DSA and talk through what each of our own experiences in DSA have been. One of our, one of the questions a DSA member submitted was, how are we... I assume that means is DSA going to represent the interests of the South and the rural Midwest? So I, I actually spend a lot of time thinking about rural areas. Fargo's not that rural, but we rely super heavily on um, farming economy and unfortunately the oil industry. When it comes to rural organization and I mean, even suburban organization is it's important to not necessarily think about it as disconnected from the issues that a city might have in terms of organizing yes it's a lot harder because people are spread out they're more isolated to get to there's obviously more challenges politically in terms of many counties being far more um, conservative than a city would be but like 
the thing I like to bring up with people is that the relationship that like a turkey farmer in Minnesota has with Jenny O is very similar to the relationship that a driver has with Uber um, in that they are both kind of beholden to this like corporation above them that they really have no other option in terms of how they how they can work. But like that turkey farmer like just doesn't necessarily like exist in a vacuum. They can work with or you know that their product ends up going to like uh, a small city where there's a processing plant and in that processing plant there's a ton of immigrants um, and a lot of refugees and now we have you know questions of like imperialism. Like Dapple is a really uh, good example of how like interconnected everything is. So Dapple in Standing Rock became this issue that was super localized and it was very much about that one lake and like this hundred yard line of pipe there and there's all sorts of actors like the people putting the pipeline in were union workers right so there's i mean there it's a complicated issue but it's also an issue of you know global imperialism like reckoning with american history and then the response to that after standing rock sort of disbanded like the the response to the pipelines hasn't been necessarily to just find another rural area like section of the of the pipeline although that sort of stuff is happening it's it's also you know like i mean city people are divesting from banks for example that that help fund the oil companies that are behind these pipelines so i mean like it's important to like think about like the interconnectedness of rural areas to the rest of the world and i think when people forget that the rural world is like very connected um it tends to like make a lot of rural people like really annoyed because <laughs> I, I think at a really deep level, a lot of people understand like, you know, like where I'm from, it's like the breadbasket of America. And we're not like joking about that. Like literally almost all of the wheat in every piece of bread that you eat goes through Grand Forks. So it's important to think about like when we're doing like some sort of action or whatever, like how can we disrupt all along the chain of depending on any geographies? And that can start with the turkey farmer and it can go all the way to, you know, like the restaurants um, serving that turkey you know the, the person asking the question says how do we represent the interests of the south and the rural midwest i think we're building a democratic organization at the local level and at the national level and i think the way that we're going to represent the interests of those groups is the same as how we're going to represent the interests of groups around the country which is by having you know transparent national structures, democratic things like having a convention, having a podcast like this, having stakeholder calls and, and open lines of communication. And I think it, it's also going to take people being intentional who aren't from those regions about thinking, you know, listening closely to what the leaders of those chapters need. And also for people from those chapters speaking up clearly about what they need. Uh, from other chapters and from the national organization. Absolutely. I'll just add to that. You know, I sort of take it on faith that because we are the kind of organization that we are, that larger chapters in cities with different kinds of resources, with better resources that may not be as read, I take it on faith that those members will keep us in mind and will always enter into good faith efforts to to help us out. And I know that 
members here in the South are already super vocal about what our needs are. And so I think we're just going to continue to be very vocal. I know that personally, and then from conversations with other people here in North Carolina, at the very least, we would just look to any other chapter anywhere in the country that has had certain success building their chapters and being willing to then provide training um, based on their experiences to chapters that are struggling. So I just think it's a matter of opening yourself up to, to educating other chapters and opening yourself up to receiving that help. But I guess what that means in terms of platforms and and nationwide initiatives, that remains to be seen, and we'll talk about that at, at the convention. I guess the other thing that, I, I, that just occurred to me as Jahari was talking is that I think it's really important to have representation on the NPC of people who are from these parts of the country. I know there's a ton of people running from the South and from the Midwest, and I think even people who aren't from those areas should, you know, should vote in such a way to elect a geographically diverse national political committee. So next up from the mailbag, people are curious to know, how is DSA dealing with the influx of new members? So I think this is a great question. And I think it's something that everyone in DSA is thinking about right now, because on the one hand, it's growing from 5,000 to almost 25,000 is exactly what we need to do. And we need to do it a bunch more times because we still have only a fraction of the, the people that it's going to take to win socialism in the United States. But it's also, you know, any organization that grows that much in such a short period of time is going to struggle. And so for me, it's helpful to sort of think about some of the, the conversations that we've had since I've been on the National Political Committee um, in the past two years, I guess it's been. So one, I think when I was first on the NPC, there was a conversation about, okay, well, in you know more than half the states in the country, we don't have chapters, but we have members. You know, what can we do to engage people who don't live in the same state with a group? And the thing is that like as an organization, we now have chapters in almost every state. We're going to probably have chapters in every state within a few months. And we have chapters in almost every metro area in the country. And I think that, you know, that wasn't something that we just like did on the National Political Committee. It's something that we, the members of this organization did, because everyone who joined this organization looked around and said, hey, I want to have a chapter where I live. Um, I was part of that. I moved from New York City shortly after I joined DSA out to central New Jersey. And I found another person online who I'd never met. And we got together and we both joined DSA and we started a group together. And other people have done that all over the country. And because of that, we now have chapters, you know, almost everywhere. Uh, and so I think that's one of the big ways that we've handled it. But the other way is by dramatically increasing what we do. You know, people have formed new working groups, new activities, new campaigns, and people are bringing their best energy and their best ideas for what we as an organization can do. And I think as we have more people coming in who want to do things and more people bringing their best ideas of what to do, those things are kind of getting matched up. And so, you know, veterans have formed a, uh, a working group 
queer people have been organizing, you know, first a series of webinars and now they have a working group. People in the labor movement have been finding each other and networking in a Facebook group and now, you know, having conference calls and putting forward resolutions to the convention. And so I think we're growing broader geographically, but also deepening the, the different kinds of work we're doing and the, and the degree of it. And I think we just have to keep doing that more and more and more. That's how we, as an organization of 25,000 members, or hopefully soon 25,000, um, that's how we're going to manage our way up to 100,000. So yeah, um, Russ, I thought that was really helpful. It reminded me of an issue that we had a while back here in North Carolina. Someone mentioned that we were having an influx of people, you know, relatively. We were, you know, getting more people, which is always great. And there was the concern that this person didn't know what we were going to do with all these new people. So my response was, well, you know, actually new people aren't more people to manage. They're people who are bringing in skills and will contribute to this member-led organization. But I wonder if you and Hannah would say a few words um, about, you know, the other way this question could go. So it's great that because we're member-led, we can deal with an influx of people by doing more stuff and by going wider and deeper in terms of what our initiatives are and the, um, the actions that we take. But I also wonder if you could speak to how the structure of the DSA is handling this influx of new people in terms of resources and management. I think it has been challenging because I think we've gone from an organization where everyone kind of knew each other when I joined or, you know, even though we had 5,000 people and 5,000 people can't all know each other, a lot of people had been around for a long time. A lot of the most active people were all sort of had been seeing each other for years. And we've gone to, you know, a level where there's people who are doing really important work for the organization who've never met maybe anyone on the National Political Committee or they've never met any national staff or two people who are doing really important things that are related on other in different parts of the country don't know each other um, and may not even know about what's going on. So I think that's one challenge is just going from kind of a situation where everybody knows each other to one where a lot of people don't know each other. And so there's not the sort of mutual trust that gets built up when you know people. So I think that's one challenge is um, I think it's harder to give people the benefit of the doubt when you don't know them personally. We're trying different things to try to connect people closer to, to have more transparency, more communication, less confusion. The stakeholder calls are part of that. Um, trying to build up our capacity for chapter mentorship is another. This podcast is another thing. Having more Facebook groups and more different kinds of things like that are, are all sorts of attempts to try to build community so that people who can't physically all meet each other can at least be talking to each other and can all kind of get on the same page to some extent. So I think those are some of the things that we're doing. I think also a lot of the, the work of building a strong organization costs a lot of money. So we've had to increase our staff dramatically in the past year. And I think that's helped a lot. The fact that we have Hannah on staff, the fact that we have 
Ryan Mosgrove doing the work on the YDS full time, the fact that we have um, a part time director of operations, the fact that we have more office help, the fact that we have all those staff doing things that it used to be Maria and David would have to do themselves has, I think, helped us to adjust to it, but it's still just so much work. Yeah, I mean, I would totally second what Russ said. And I would say that, you know, not just in DSA, but my experience organizing on the left over the last 10 years has shown me that how important organizations are in anchoring movements, right? That we need to build the infrastructure that can allow us to build the kind of movements like through training and development of members and through all the things that like staff allow us to do that we really need an organization that can hold that. And so I totally would second what Russ says. The other thing I would say is to go back to something I think, Jahari, that you said before that was in your response to the person in North Carolina about like, you know, this is actually a really great opportunity because all of a sudden we have all these people, new people with excitement and energy and and all these skills. So it's really about like, how do we create the structure where everybody can thrive right. and where to go back to something Russ said, like where we can have real community and really trust each other. Because I think this is the thing that's like going to be make or break for DSA is do we trust each other? Are we here to build a community with one another where we're all fighting together for socialism? And that's that's huge. Um, so I'm I'm really excited for the convention for that reason in particular is that I think we'll get to meet each other in person and do some of that community and trust building. So I think that also is something that's going to help us not just maintain our current number or our current membership, but also to like think about how do we grow. Finally, what role do young people play in the socialist movement? Do you have a response to this? Well, I guess I would just say briefly that they're already turned on to socialism. And I remember, I know the tendency is to get older and then to be disinterested in what young people are doing. And to some extent, I'm already there. Like, I don't care about their music. I don't care about what they're <laughs> wearing or eating or whatever. But um you know, I remember being somewhat aware as a young person and having ideas that I still hold now. And I just think being democratic socialists, we have to be open to all people. And that includes young people. And I wouldn't I would want to give them space in this organization as much as I would want to give space to anyone in this organization, especially with the world that they're inheriting. And so I'm. I'm all about that. And I would love to, I actually live not too far from several um, small colleges in downtown Raleigh. And I daydream about walking onto those campuses and like finding the young radicals and starting a YDS there. Johari, that's so great because um, I don't know if you've met our student organizer, Ryan, yet. Have you met Ryan? I have not. Um, Ryan is great and Ryan is going to talk about this at the convention, but there's going to be a fall campus recruitment drive that DSA members can do. So preview of that. We'll find out more at the convention. Fantastic. I just wanted to say that I like what you're saying. I totally resonates with me because, um, until a month ago, I worked at Princeton university. I was in campus dining. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I started working there, you know, there was no YDS or anything. 
And by the end of the time that I was there, I helped a little bit, but the really the students did it, um, got themselves organized into a YDS chapter. And it was like every night when I was at work making dinner and sandwiches and stuff for all these students, I would be making dinner for like at least one or two socialists who would be coming up to me and be like, hey, Russ, and <laughs> talking to me about the organizing they're doing and the thoughts they're having about the world. And I can say it really improved my job satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the enthusiasm is enough, like it, it in itself is like enough to like bring them on board because it's just infectious and we need that energy to sustain us, um, among other things. Yeah, that, this is a fun question um, because what happened here in North Dakota is is kind of funny. Um, we have we have a really young group in our chapter. Um, I I'm one of the older people, um, and I'm only 34. But when we first started talking about this, a, a lot of the older, like in their 70s and 80s, nonpartisan leaguers, got really excited about the idea of socialists uh, like doing work and actually trying to take power back in North Dakota. So it was it was really fun, like seeing like younger people like talk to people who are like their grandparents age about socialism at like all sorts of different events and then one of the things that actually really stuck with me with one of those older gentlemen that i was speaking to is he was like you know we know more about each other today than we ever did before and he was talking about like facebook and stuff like that but he's like we just don't really know each other and he was like really excited to hear about like one-on-ones and like going and talking to people like face to face and the sort of like organizing that we do because he's like you know that's what we that's what we used to do we used to have coffee with our neighbors (laughs) it was it was good (laughs) it's been good that's great yeah that definitely reflects my hope for dsa uh, that i mentioned earlier that we we remain an intergenerational organization and one where like we have everybody from you know high school students to folks who have been in the movement for a really long time yeah, I so I still identify as young, I guess. I'm 25. And so I, I still sort of see myself as a young person. And I think for me, it's, you know, the fact that DSA is intergenerational has been one of the coolest things about it for me. I've gotten to meet some really amazing people. One of my best friends in New Jersey is a guy who's the same age as my grandparents and who had a huge amount of amazing stuff, shout out to Marty Oppenheimer, to bring to our group, which is really fantastic. And I think that it's also really cool for older people to have the experience of organizing with younger people, just like Zach is talking about. I think my dad has been a socialist in some way, shape, or form since the 1970s. And, you know, he's gotten involved with his local DSA and um, has just been so excited to kind of meet young people who are interested in talking to him about, you know, his experiences and what he knows and who are interested in building with him and, and, and fighting for a better world. So I think the kind of the intergenerational thing is great. I also think, you know, when we look back in time, you know, big movements for change have always involved young people and even younger people than we might be thinking about, like, a lot of the key folks in the sit-in movement in the South during the civil rights movement and the bus boycotts and all this kind of stuff, there were people who were like 15 and 16 years old. And I've read, I wish I knew the exact statistic, but during the Russian Revolution, I think 
like the median age of a Bolshevik party member was like 19 or something like that. Um, and that, you know, don't quote me, might, that might be off. But I think, you know, movements for change are often um, have a huge amount of participation by young people. Uh, and so I think it's great to see that DSA is, is like that now. I was trying to Google for the median age of a Bolshevik, uh, but I, uh, I could not find it. But I totally, I was going to say the same thing, Russ, about the sit-ins. And I think the, the like also interesting thing about the sit-ins too is that the folks, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee folks had counsel from advisors and who were much older than them. So like Ella Baker. And I think that represents both the like energy and excitement of having a youth-centered movement, but also one that like respects the wisdom of folks who've been doing the work for a really long time and seeks the counsel and like advisement of folks who've been engaged in struggle for longer. Also, another thing, just sort of thinking about DSA and, and young people, I think sometimes I hear people who've been in DSA for a while talk about the idea that we sort of went through a period, uh, you know, I, I would say kind of broadly from like when Michael Harrington passed until, you know, I don't know, 2015 or something, where it was, you know, we were short on resources and we didn't have the kind of like national profile that we have that we had and that we have again. And there were times when it seemed like the organization wasn't going to make it even another year. And but that I've also heard people say that what kind of preserved DSA and made it able to kind of like rise again in a way is the fact that we always really invested in building YDS chapters throughout that whole period so that once, you know, once the sort of the political climate in this country changed after, you know, Occupy and through Black Lives Matter and then the burning campaign, we had a lot of, you know, younger people, like people in their mid-20s who had been YDS members and who had some connection to DSA and some organizing experience a lot of whom are, you know, in their 30s now, maybe, but helped to build, you know, strong chapters in different places around the country and who built Jacobin Magazine and who've played an important role in the labor movement and, and are building DSA up now. And so I think that, like, that decision that, uh, that the organization made all through those years to, like, invest in, in YDS and in, like, youth organizing is, you know, maybe the thing that saved us. I think that's such a really good point. And I have heard tell of, you know, David and Maria's role, particularly in that, that like their ability, Maria came out of YDS, like their ability to galvanize YDS chapters to become a part of DSA seems really crucial in that. And I think goes back to our earlier conversation around like staff and how we build an organization. Okay, so I think that's all the time we have for questions from the mailbag. So now Russ from DSA's National Political Committee and I are going to give you some updates from the national office. Here we go. So as we're getting ready for the national convention, we're also doing a lot of real on the ground work. Um, DSA played a pretty big role in a coalition that also included our revolution, Working Families Party, and Democracy Spring um, to stop the healthcare cuts, which is really the issue that kind of everyone is talking about right now um, in the country. 
So GSA members in places like Colorado, Louisiana, and West Virginia, and a lot of other places too, joined the call to uh, have sit-ins in Republican senators' offices. Um, and, you know, it seems like, at least for now, we've won. They're not repealing Obamacare yet. On another front, we're nationally boycotting BNH photo and video um, because this is the campaign that New York City DSA has been working on for a long time. Uh, this is a big photo company in New York City where their warehouse workers have formed a union with the United Steelworkers, and DSA has really taken up their campaign as one of the major kinds of work that they've been doing with uh, pickets every Friday and Sunday, and it's been a huge amount of energy, um, and they've really, this has become one of the signature issues for DSA in New York, and now it's becoming a national thing because we know that to, uh, to support these workers and to really put pressure on DNA, we need to impact not just people who buy cameras at their store, but people who buy their products online all over the country. You can go to www.boycottdnh.com, and that's letter B, letter N, letter H, for more on how you can be involved. Lastly, I'm excited to tell everybody about the National Electoral Committee. This is a group of 10 DSA members who are selected by the DSA elected leadership in the national application process. They're sending out a series of endorsement recommendations based on nominations by DSA chapters. The NPC will be voting on whether to endorse these candidates or not, most of whom are DSA members. If and when we endorse, we will encourage DSA members across the country to help concentrate our support on the elections of the socialist candidates, just like we did for Khalid Kamau in South Fulton, Georgia this year. Okay, so... Probably the thing that is on everybody's minds right now for DSA members is the convention. So here's a quick update about convention 2017. As some of you may know, this convention will be eight times larger than our last convention two years ago, which is amazing. And so we in the national office are going bananas with the national convention logistics. But we're so excited because this is going to be the largest gathering of socialists in a generation and I would argue is going to have the best hashtags of any convention, DSA convention or other convention ever, because one of our hashtags is DSACon 2017. And the other one is beautiful socialists, which you're supposed to use as a hashtag when you tag pictures of people or videos, which is excellent. So another exciting update about the National Convention, we are going to have lots of member-submitted workshops, debate, we're going to have skills and strategy sessions, we're going to have national training sessions that lots of DSA members have worked to develop who have community and labor organizing experience, and it is all happening at the convention. I'm particularly excited about this because we have over 100 people from across the country who are going to be helping to facilitate workshops and training, which is just pretty amazing to think about all the work that has gone into developing all of those workshops and trainings. So I'm pretty excited about that. And just a reminder to convention delegates, there is all kinds of information about the convention on our special website, dsaconvention.org. Okay, so that's the convention. So the other update from the national office that I wanted to give is that 
With so many new chapters and new members, we've worked really hard as uh, the national leadership and members and staff to come up with more opportunities for pre-convention discussion so that as many members as possible can participate. And so on July 15th, we held a virtual conference about priorities proposals and gave tools to promote chapter level discussion and conference calls between now and the convention to discuss resolutions. And I'll say, too, that the project of creating internal democracy is one that I think all of us, members, national leaders, staff, we're all trying to figure out together what internal democracy looks like in a 24,000-person socialist organization. So things like the priorities discussions are experiments, and they're imperfect, but I've heard really good feedback about these discussions from all of you, and I'm really excited for working together at the convention. Okay, those are all our national updates. All right, so this is Hannah, and I just want to close us out. This has been our second episode of Rose Radio. I want to say thank you to my co-host, Jahari. All right, everybody. Bye. Okay, bye. 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 You're great. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye, Jahari. Bye, yeah. Oh, thanks, Zach. So great to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And all of our wonderful guests, All right. Goodbye for now, socialists. See you in Chicago. Bye, Russ. Bye, Zach. Bye. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for building socialism. (laughs) Yay, socialism. And a special thank you to Rob, our sound engineer here in New York. Thanks, Rob. All right. Thanks, listeners. Bye.